Hey, thanks for joining us on the No Limits Church podcast. Here at No Limits, we are on a mission to make a difference in the lives of others. We want to help people know God, find freedom, and discover purpose. It's a journey, and we're all walking it together. So wherever you're listening from, we pray that you are encouraged and empowered by this week's message. All right, y'all, welcome to No Limits. Thanks so much for being here. You could have been on vacation, but you chose to be here. This is a good place to be. And thanks for joining us online, too. If you're watching online, it's great to hear the Word of God over the internet. But if you ever have a chance to be here with us in person, come on and be here with us in person. It's the best way to be at church. Anybody agree with that? Amen. All right. Well, I get the privilege of introducing our small groups director, Chris Wills. He's going to bring us the Word today. Um, This guy has been a good friend of mine for a long time now. And I'm really thankful for him because he's one of the guys that you can go to and he's always pursuing God. He's always wants like a deeper level of God and he'll just motivate you to do the same. And another thing I appreciate about you, man, is you live life at like a slower pace than most. And uh, most people would see that as like a bad trait, but it's actually a really good trait because I think he lives closer to the pace of Jesus than, than most of the rest of us do. So he's a good example for all of us. So come on up here, man. Let me pray over you. Yeah. Lord, thank you for the word this man of God is going to bring us today. We ask that your anointing be all over him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for that outstanding introduction, Pastor (laughs) Kate. How's everyone doing today? Amen. Good. Glad to hear it. Who's liking the cooler weather today? Tired of that hot summer? I don't know. Do what? (laughs) I don't know why so many people actually love our summers because they're so hot and miserable to me. So I'm ready for fall, but (laughs) Uh, well, today I think is going to be pretty interesting because I'm speaking on a topic that is not in and of itself controversial, but the more I would dig into it, the more it got controversial. So I'm just letting you know up front, it's probably gonna be a little controversial, all right? But that doesn't bother me any. Because today I'm going to be talking about the great awakening or awakenings that have happened. And I'm also going to talk about how we can step into our calling, which is why I'm wearing my wonderful shirt. I was made for this, right? I see a bunch of them in here because we are all made for this. So the, the great awakenings, uh, well, you know what? Just, just by a show of hands, who's heard of the great awakenings? Who's know, who knows what they are? The great awakenings. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Because as I began to seek God on what to speak on and what to preach on, like the great awakening is really the only thing that just coming back to me. Like it was just kept me speaking on those great awakenings, the great awakenings, and how it really ties into our nation. So that's what I'm going to talk about. And it also ties in a lot with what Pastor Cade had said. Remember he said that there would be a prophetic word come last service, and then uh, God already had that word prepared for Carrie. I mean, it was already set apart, like all these steps are lining up, and then Carrie brings in a, an amazing prophetic word. He talks about how the winds of change are coming across this nation. He talked how we need to stand, even when it looks like that God isn't doing anything in the natural. Our God is a supernatural God, and He is moving right now, and it's, and it's our time to stand. It's not our time to back down. And, uh, and that was a prophetic word for our nation, for this church, for this time. And then at the end of last service, you know, Pastor Kate told us to envision the enemy defeated. He said, the enemy is defeated. Now there's a harvest. There's a harvest ready to be harvested. It's just waiting for laborers to be sent out. Amen. And that's where we come into play. (laughs) So uh, ever since last Sunday, I kept thinking about a message that I heard from Andrew Womack. 
Now, he is the pastor, or I guess he's not a pastor. He started Karis Bible College in Colorado. And if you've never heard of him, I encourage you to look him up because his teachings are phenomenal. But he was attending a conference, actually in Oklahoma City, back in March. And he was just praying and seeking God during the conference. And uh, he heard the God tell him about uh, another awakening coming. And he said, God, are you telling me? Cause, well, I mean, it's debatable how many there are, but basically we're going to say there was two great awakenings. There's two big great awakenings. And so Andrew said, God, you, you're telling me there's going to be a third great awakening? And God told him, no, it is going on now. You are in the middle of the third great awakening. It has already started. And if you listen to Andrew, you know, he, he just doesn't say stuff lightly. Like he would not say that unless he was 100% confident that God told him that we're in the middle of a third great awakening. So God is doing something big right now. Well, I'd heard of Great Awakenings, but I never really studied them. But I just kept thinking, like, if we're in the middle of one, it would probably be wise if I look back at the first two to see what happened, why it happened, how it happened. And so we're going to be going through a lot of history of the Great Awakenings, which will tie into the Revolutionary War, the tie into the Civil War. If you heard my message last year, about this time of year, it was a Christianity in American history. Well, this is basically going to be a part two of that, because <laughs> the awakenings had so much to do with our history. And it's going to help us understand our part to play and how we can equip ourselves for the great harvest that is ahead of us. Before I start, I want to talk, uh, I just want to look at a part of Psalms. This is Psalm, part of Psalm 77. Now, we don't know who wrote this, but it sounds like he was going through a really rough time. So I know some of us can relate to that today, especially when you go out and you see gas prices, you see lumber prices, which are finally starting to come back down. I'm I'm in the steel industry, so I cut steel, and it's over twice as much to buy metal as it was a year ago. Yes, almost three times as much. It's crazy. But that's not hyperinflation, though. Don't let them them talk you into that. Hmm. Anyway, it's easy to look around. It's easy also to look at and see how morality is, seems like it's non-existent anymore. Basically, if, if you're not a murderer, you're good. Like, that's like the extent. That's like the line they use for morality anymore, right? So it's easy to get discouraged. And that's where this psalmist was at. And he said, this is Psalm 77, 7 through 12. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Amen. So just like the psalmist When things look bad, we're just going to look back on the good things God has done. We're going to remember that our God is a good God always, today, yesterday, and forever. So I realize there's a lot of people in here who uh, don't really know what the Great Awakenings were. So we're going to talk about that now. And basically, there were times in American history when, like, the whole nation was in revival, right? It wasn't, like, localized. It was, like, the whole nation. But it wasn't even just revival as in people were, were coming to salvation it was that they were had a whole cultural mind, mindset change, right? They changed, The way they thought and the way they acted changed. Some of these dates can be debatable. 
But basically, the first Great Awakening started in 1730 and went all the way through this, like 1770. Right? It was like decades of people, because it takes a long time to train up a nation. But it's interesting because the people living in these times didn't even know they were in any sort of revival, right? All they knew is that God had given them a mission. He had given them something to do, and they were doing it. So they were going out. They were laboring for Christ without even knowing the big impact that they were going to make. And uh, it wasn't until later when historians could look back on that period of time and they went, whoa, something big happened here. Something amazing happened here. Let's call that, let's call that a, an awakening. We'll call it a great awakening. And that's where that term came from. So even though that these nationwide periods took decades, there, and we got to remember, I mean, obviously we know this, but there was no television, there was no internet back then. So it was actually a whole lot of revivals in towns and in small communities and cities. Like it was a whole bunch of localized uh, revivals happening all at once that made it a big, great awakening. But there was one man by the name of George Whitfield, who is one of the most famous pastors, and that's because he actually traveled nationally. He would travel all the way from Maine all the way down to Georgia on horseback, back and forth, back and forth. In fact, I think uh, to go to Georgia and back was like three and a half months it took on horseback, but he had a traveling pulpit, just put it on the horse was, and go. And uh, he was actually from England, but he made, I think, seven trips to America to preach the gospel. He preached over 18,000 sermons. 18,000. They say that 80% of the people in America at the time would have heard him preach. 80% would have heard him preach without television. That's insane. That's crazy. But he literally preached himself to death, and he knew he was doing it. He didn't care. He said, I would rather wear out than rest out. And so he just wore himself out for God because he didn't care, right? So during this time, though, Whitfield was persecuted a lot, right? People threw a bunch of stuff at him. He was outcast all the time. He had to preach in the woods. But you know who persecuted him? It wasn't the world. It was other pastors. Other pastors persecuted this guy, right? They hated it because, well, he would preach to lower-class citizens. He would preach to slaves. He would preach to women. Like, he didn't care. He thought the gospel was for everybody, and he was going to preach it to everybody, right? So, all, all, in fact, all these other churches that opposed him would actually tell their their members, so it'd be like Pastor Kay telling you, hey, go grab some rocks, some old rotten fruit, whatever you got, go throw it at that guy. Get him out of here. So he'd get pushed out in the woods, and they would literally tell their members to, hey, when he's preaching, go get up in trees and urinate and defecate on him as he's preaching. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's how much this guy was. Who would keep preaching? You know what I'm saying? Who, <laughs> who would keep preaching after that? He didn't slow down, though. So here's the first key takeaway. It's not all sunshine and roses, okay? Because <laughs> it's easy to think about these times of great revival where the whole church is united, right? And everyone's just holding hands, singing Kumbaya, but that is not what happened. In fact, it was a lot of hard work. And many of those laborers in the faith never even knew they were in that revival, but we see a lot of the same stuff going on today because, you know, it, it divided the body between they were debating on what was right and what was wrong. It was no longer just solely what the Bible said. There was actually a debate on it, right? So the pastors that led these great times in our history were actually in the minority. But they preached the word of God, which stirred the hearts of everyday people. 
You know, so as a pastor, they're in the minority, but they stirred enough people up and got enough people to be on the same page as God that it greatly impacted our nation. So much so that the First Great Awakening is known to be one of the greatest movements that kick-started the Revolutionary War because it challenged the conventional way of thinking in several different areas. Because one of the major areas was like the church was almost seen as like a royal hierarchy, right? And, of course, a lot of people back then believed also in the divine right of kings. So they thought, well, they have the right to be king, and they wanted to be subjected to him. But these pastors would come in, and they'd preach against these ideologies, and they would preach more of like a, an individual should know who God is, a more personal relationship with God. And it changed the ideologies of our founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, for instance. When Thomas Jefferson was creating the Declaration of Independence, okay, there were several drafts, but obviously its purpose was to declare independence from Great Britain. So a list of reasons, or you'd call grievances, were written down. And the first draft, the longest grievance written by Jefferson, was actually about slavery. He wanted to abolish it. That's actually his first draft. I don't know how well you can read that. But this was his first draft. He wanted to abolish it straight from the get-go in American history. You won't, you won't hear that in any history book. They don't teach that. But Jefferson uh, wanted to get rid of it. The only reason it did not make it into the Declaration of Independence was because two of the southern states, remember there was 13 colonies when they become states, two of them did not want this in there because they wanted slaves. So two out of 13, 11 we're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's abolish it right off the gate. But they had already agreed that all the states have to be on the same page. We have to be able to agree on everything that's in that declaration because if we are not united, then we will, we will fail against uh, our independence from Great Britain. So unfortunately, this didn't make it. And unfortunately, this detail, it gets lost and it gets misconstrued. And woke, woke culture wants to tell you that he was a racist. I want to tell you that Jefferson is a racist, which is blows my mind. It's like, how can you say that? So they took slavery out of the Declaration, and they ended up with 27 grievances to leave Great Britain. But most people only know one reason, because if I were to ask you, why did we leave Great Britain, what's, what's everybody say? Taxation without representation. That's what everybody knows. That was one like little sentence in the long list of 27 grievances we had when we left Great Britain. It's crazy. But they were, the reason is these people were frustrated because the king was abusing and removing what they felt like were God-given rights, okay? So that, that's why it says in our declaration that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, capital C, with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, so they, then they go on to declare what these grievances are. And it's a list of things they felt the king was infringing upon on their rights. But what people don't know today about this list is that these are all topics that had been preached from the pulpit for the previous 20 years. Right? They learned all these God-given rights from the pulpit. It's crazy. So who has here heard of the Black Robe Regiment? The Black Robe Regiment. These guys are really cool. <laughs> because it was actually a name placed on a, 
like courageous patriotic clergymen of the day, uh, Great Britain, the British would call them the Black Robe Regiment because it was, it was a backhanded comment because these guys wore black robes when they preached. So that's what they called them. But uh, I just lost my place here for a second. Oh, the, the British blamed them for American independence, the Black Robe Regiment. He blamed the church for American independence. In fact, the first four battles, right, that we fought with British were not even fought by our national army. George Washington and his army did not fight the first four battles of our independence. Nobody ever even contacted Washington and said, hey, we're getting attacked. Nobody did. It was the, let's look at the first one. It happened in, uh, in Lexington, right? And these guys had this core belief that this is my community. This is our community. We're going to defend it. And that's the end of the story. So they were armed Americans, and they were actually led by pastors. See, you won't see this. You'll get names, like if you try to study like mainstream history, history, but they won't tell you that these were like actual pastors, right? You go all the way back to the very first Battle of Lexington, and this battle took place. Pastor Jonas Clark, with his deacon, Captain John Parker, rallied 77 men from their community to stand against 700 British soldiers that were coming to town. Remember, they didn't even ask Washington for help. They said, no, we got this. We got 77 guys. You know, that's crazy. (laughs) But pastors, see, this is another key point. Pastors back then would teach the difference between an offensive war and a defensive war. They said, look, God cannot bless this if we shoot first. We cannot be the aggressors. We are not to, we're not to start a war. But we have a biblical uh, foundation for self-defense. So you guys do not shoot. So there's 77 of you standing there looking at 700 British soldiers, and you're told you cannot shoot until they shoot. I mean, you're basically just signing a death sentence at that point, right? So as a result, uh, 18 Patriots hit the ground that day. Basically, the British show up. They fire a volley. Uh, a bunch of the uh, Americans go down, and then they just scatter at that point. And then the British is pretty confident and like, cool, we're moving on. They move on to Concord. But what they didn't know when they hit Concord, there was another pastor that had rallied more like two or 300 people. And they attacked. The, the British had split up in smaller groups. And so they got to attack a smaller group. And then they started around. They started going back down the road to Boston. Like, hey, we got to recoup. We got to re- refigure a battle plan. They start going back down the road. And there was 4,500 American patriots on that road shooting at them as they went back to Boston. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So all this, and they still had it contacted George Washington to say, hey, we're under attack, because they took responsibility for their community. So again, I want to just reiterate like what these men and women were able to do when they focused on local community, right? Not only were they able to create nationwide revival, but they were able to fight off the British Army without even asking for help. So their role in this first great awakening was to focus on their town, the people, Everybody around them. And uh, so the First Great Awakening shaped the way that people thought, right? And now these are rough numbers, but just to, just, to, just to tell you a little more about it, there was only about a third of America that even wanted to separate from Great Britain. A third wanted to stay with Great Britain, and then a third was like, I just, I don't know, I just want to live peacefully. Just leave me alone. They didn't want to take a side. Those are rough numbers, but that, that's basically about what it was. But even though there was a third that wanted independence from Great Britain, only 9% of Americans stood up to fight. 
Only 9% stood up. It's just amazing what God can do through a small remnant. You know, that is not that many people to stand up. So the Great Awakening uh, didn't get the entire country on the same page, but it changed enough people and changed their thought processes on how to think about like a biblical worldview that people began to see that all people were created equal. There wasn't a divine right to a king. There wasn't some royal church hierarchy. Uh, but a small enough portion had enough passion and for God-given freedoms that they went out and changed the course of our nation. So now during this time, during, uh, before and after, during the revolution, pastors didn't just teach salvation, right? They taught on social issues. They taught on cultural issues. They taught on everything that was going on in the world and inside their own communities. A lot of the church today likes to separate the church from cultural, social, political issues. But it was not like that back then. They believe the Bible teaches us how to live godly life, and it speaks to all aspects of our lives. There was no separation from God from anything. If there was a bridge being built, there'd be a sermon on architecture, okay? If there was an earthquake, there, I mean, there was like a whole series of sermons on earthquakes after, after there was an earthquake. In fact, preachers would preach on taxes. They would teach on property tax. They would teach on uh, immigration, who to vote for president, who not to vote for president, by listing names, not just that they would call them out by name. In fact, the congregation wanted their pastor to tell them who to vote for because they wanted to know who the most godly candidate was. It was expected to hear uh, that kind of political stuff that we would call it today in church because those who are elected create laws. They change culture. And people wanted to know from their pastor who best suited, who was best suited for these positions. Pastors were expected to be the most educated, most knowledgeable people in their communities. You had to be well-versed on every topic that is currently happening, and you had to have a response based solely from the Word of God on that current issue. You couldn't just preach your feelings. Like, it had to come from the Word of God. So they had to read three to four books. They had to. Okay, this was some of the denominations, like, like you have to do this. It wasn't even a question of they just wanted to. Like, they had to read at least three or four books every week just to know what was going on in the world. And then they had to create sermons and preach the Word of God of how this relates to the church and how we should be reacting to these, these different issues. So the pastors were well-studied in current culture and the Bible which means they would immediately know Scripture for every current issue. And this is how you turn, this is how you disciple a nation, right? Remember, that is the Great Commission. The Great Commission, we read it in Matthew 28, and it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So he didn't say make disciples in all nations. He said make disciples of all nations. This notion to keep God out of politics is just deceit to keep us from accomplishing what God has called the church to do. 
Because most of these issues that are seen today, like you can take abortion, gay marriage, immigration, sexuality, you name it, it doesn't matter. They are not political issues because they're biblical issues. They are all addressed in the Bible, and they can all be argued from the Bible. They're all laid out in the Bible if you just study it. The problem is, though, men like to put their own thoughts and their ideologies instead of just saying, you know what, what God says, that's it. That's final. End of story. I don't care what my feelings are. I don't care what I think should be right. Whatever God says, that's it. Amen. Amen. That's what Proverbs 14, 12. This proverb is so important, it shows up again. There's two proverbs exactly the same. This is what it says. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it but its end is the way of death, right? Our thoughts and feelings can be contrary to the Word of God. That's why it's so important to study the Word so we can judge our own thoughts and feelings against the Word of God. That's why we're also told to renew our mind. Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I've had to change a lot the way I think. Why? Because I realize God is God, and I'm not God. I'm going to believe His Word over my thoughts and feelings. But once you get this heart change, once you say, God, whatever you say, that's it. Once you get that attitude change, you will start to desire the things of God, and your thoughts will line up with His thoughts, and you will begin to be more like-minded, because you submit to Him not just as Savior, but also Lord. So many people just know, God, know Jesus as Savior, but they do not know Him as Lord. They haven't given him lordship over every aspect of their life. Well, I don't have a lot more time to talk about the second great awakening, but it was amazing as well. And it roughly went from 1801 through 1870. During this time, pastors were writing sermons against slavery. There was some there were some pastors in southern states that were trying to use the Bible to justify slavery. Uh, but we see they're no longer around, right? Like nobody's doing that because they weren't preaching the Word of God. But all the Great Awakening pastors, all the ones that actually changed the culture of the nation, were vehemently against slavery, right? In fact, back then, this was a very much a political issue. What we would call a political issue today is the way slavery was seen back then. But the church didn't see it that way. They saw it as these people have their God-given freedoms taken from them, and they're subjected to slavery, and we're not going to stand for it. We're going to stand against it. So again, these pastors changed the culture by speaking out against these things. Abolishment of slavery was preached by the church so much. Okay, now you guys are going to think that I am getting political up here. I'm not trying to promote anything. I'm just telling you history. This is historical fact. Okay, Abolishment of slavery was preached so much that there was actually a contingent of Democrats in Congress that said, we should never let pastors speak on political issues because it violates the First Amendment, right? That's how, that's how heavy they were preaching against it. Well, in 1854, slavery was actually expanded. In New England, there was 4,000 pastors in New England. 3,025 of those pastors signed a petition against Congress and said, we do not agree with this expansion of slavery. Three-fourths of the pastors stood up against it because it was the morally right thing to do, and they didn't see it as a political issue. So Stephen Douglas, who was one of the candidates that opposed Abraham Lincoln, he stood up and said, this is ridiculous. These guys, talking about the pastors, are trying to set up a theocracy. People are saying that today. People think Christians are always trying to set up a theocracy. We don't want a theocracy. Uh 
He says, these guys have zero right to speak about anything that's political. Do you see where this is going? I mean, does this sound familiar at all in today? Because back in these days, slavery was seen as a political issue, and the church was supposed to keep their nose out of it. It's not for you to decide you're the church. You stick to spiritual matters, right? Well, if that would have been the case, then American history would look a lot different. Who knows if we'd ever have a civil war? Who knows how long it would have taken, if ever, to abolish slavery? Because the government, the government was actually denying them their right to assemble. They were denying their right to free speech. They were denying their right to petition. That, again, again, does that sound familiar? Does that, in fact, the last I checked, uh, I haven't checked in a couple weeks, so I don't know if it's still true or not, but there were still places like California where they were still telling churches they couldn't open. Like, this isn't, this is still happening today. It's crazy to me. So the government was denying them all these things to do, but they wouldn't bow down. And Christians eventually started the Republican Party to take a stand against slavery. Lincoln ran on the Republican ticket and won. And as always, as we all know, then the southern states receded and we had a civil war. But now here's where both these awakenings tie together. This is pretty neat to me. These pastors not only changed culture by preaching truths and standing up for biblical values and morals, but they also valued one-on-one mentorship. Samuel Cooper, uh, most people probably haven't heard of Samuel Cooper. I, I mean, I had it, but he was a first-grade awakening pastor, and he mentored a young man by the name of John Quincy Adams. Who knows who John Quincy Adams is, right? He was the sixth president of the United States, son of John Adams, the second president of the United States, and also one of our founding fathers. Well, John Quincy Adams had a three-step plan to end slavery, right? But he was uh, only our sixth president, so we know he didn't fulfill that. But he had this three-step plan, but guess what? He was in valued mentorship, too, so he was like, I'm going to mentor somebody like I was mentored. And he mentored a young man by the name of Abraham Lincoln, right? Is that not amazing? Like, it ties all back to the first great awakening and mentorship of teaching true and right biblical, a biblical worldview. So we need, we need to be mentoring our youth, obviously, because, you know, the secular world can deny all they want, but it is an enlightenment of biblical truth that led to the abolishment of slavery. That's just part of our history. So when you truly disciple and mentor our youth, the effects go on for generations. I mean, you're not just pouring into one person's life. You're pouring into a whole generation of people. So I thank God for godly men and women of our past who didn't bow down to political pressure and just stick to the spiritual matters because that's their place, right? In fact, churches didn't separate anything until around this time, around the Civil War. That's when they began to pull back from social issues and uh, worldly issues. And this is because at this time, Darwin had came out with the origin of species. And it actually split up a lot of denominations because... Some of these denominations would say, well, these scientists must be right. You know, that's their expertise. Uh, we don't really know much about it, so we're just going to quit speaking about it. Not our forte. But we do know everybody needs Jesus, so we're going to go preach Jesus. And this group of Christians became what we would call evangelicals. They went out and just evangelized. Then you had another group that believed uh, the Bible was 100% accurate and fundamental to every aspect of life. It's fundamental to science, economics, sexuality, politics. It didn't matter. Bible 
was 100% fundamental to every aspect of life. And these were called the fundamentalists. So you had one group that said, we'll believe the spiritual side of the Bible, we'll stick to that, we, we can do this. And then you had the other, other group that said, no, we believe everything in the Bible is true. And you know what? Darwin will be proven wrong eventually because we know the Word of God is true. It's just that simple. And yes, even though like some animals do have adaptations, science is proving him wrong. Through the theory of evolution, it's being proven wrong every day. They're finding all sorts of stuff that prove that wrong. But I'll save that for another day because I can really get going on that topic. Uh, (laughs) But we still do the same thing today. We have people who look at the spiritual side of the Bible and say, let's just evangelize, okay? We'll stay all the worldly things because, you know, Jesus is love. He just loved everybody. So we'll stay away from the worldly things. We'll just evangelize, which can sound like a good message. I mean, that sounds good. But you can't successfully disciple a nation without getting involved in everyday worldly affairs. It just can't be done. There are a lot of similarities between what is happening now and what was happening during these first two. Because, you know, today's message, it's not just meant to be informative, but I also want to be encouraging. I wanted to to look at what caused these great awakenings. Because if we are in the middle of one right now, You know, we can either help God usher in His great awakening, or we can hinder what He wants to do in our nation. And that's why you can look and see all the similarities between then and now. Because we're, are we not in great conflict in the nation? I mean, again, it's not all sunshine and roses. Uh, Everybody isn't coming to Jesus, and the world isn't right. But remember, historically speaking, just looking back at through the Bible, the stories in the Bible, and also looking at Our nation's history, if you want to be bold and stand for Christ and actually make a difference, you will most likely be in the minority. I mean, that's just historical. Look back. And right now it's becoming harder and harder and harder to ride that fence of having a true biblical worldview or not. I mean, it's just becoming just like that. It's been happening for a while now, but it's actually the the separating of uh, wheat and chaff. It's the, the separating of of sheep and goats. I mean, it's that black and white to God. There is, there, you're a sheep or you're a goat. There is no in-between. There are no gray areas with God. And so I want to end today with the story of Nehemiah, right? This guy was awesome. This is an awesome story. I encourage you to go read the book because it is an awesome book. But Nehemiah was born during Jewish captivity, okay? But he had been promoted to the king's cupbearer. So this would be a secular king because, again, he was in captivity. But a lot of the Jews had been uh, given the okay to go back to Jerusalem. But Nehemiah gets the word that Jerusalem, like all the walls are knocked down. The place is just rubble. Everything's burnt. No, There's no houses built. Walls are knocked down. Gates are burned. Everything is just needs rebuilt. All right? looks like an impossible task. Well, he troubled him so much that Nehemiah started to pray to God. He just repented of his sins. He repented of the nation of Israel's sins. He said, God, please... Uh, give me favor that I can go back and rebuild Jerusalem because it was so dear to his heart. And the king noticed that he was in trouble, and he just asked him. He's like, hey, what's going on? And the king actually showed him favor. He, he gave, granted him permission not only to go back, but he also gave him the timber he needed to rebuild the gates. And so this seems like an impossible task. Now, I will give Nehemiah credit. This dude was confident the whole time. He was like, we are getting this done. But if you look at it, Jer- Jerusalem was a big town. Right? 
Like they had a lot to rebuild and not much time to do it because there was also people in the area that did not want them to rebuild. Like they were coming against them. They were attacking them. Can you imagine trying to fortify your town that's burnt down to rubble as you're being attacked and you're trying to rebuild all your walls? They had to put a lot of guys just uh, with swords and spears on the just around the area just so they could protect the people building it. And the people building it still had to have a sword on their hip because they were worried about getting attacked. But it didn't slow any of them down. In fact, Nehemiah just would encourage the people to rebuild. He looked around at his community and he said, not on my watch. I'm not going to let this happen in my community. He took it personally and he said, forget, forget that this looks impossible because it's possible for God. I'm trusting in God, right? Amen. And then go read the whole third chapter of the book of Nehemiah. It is awesome because it just goes through and it talks about how everybody did their part. It would be like, yeah, the Willses, they rebuilt the North Gate. And as their, their neighbor was the Sims, and the Sims were building the wall for three miles. And right next to them was the Youngs, and the Youngs were building the next gate. And right next to them was the Brants, and the Brant family was rebuilding the wall. It just, the whole chapter is just family after family after family after family just doing what they could. Just a little small part of what they were called to do. And these weren't mason, masonry people. They weren't carpenters. They were just everyday people doing what they could to rebuild this, the walls around Jerusalem. They were stacking stones just behind their houses. And stone by stone, everybody did their part. And they were able to rebuild all the walls and all the gates in only 52 days. It took them less than two months to rebuild all the walls around Jerusalem when everybody was just doing their part. That was their role. So if we want to see our nation turn back to God... Like, all we have to do is do our part, fulfill our role. And it can get overwhelming. Like, if you were to look at that, the whole wall, like, if you look at our nation and what all we have to do, it can get overwhelming, and it can actually make you lethargic and complacent to do your role. But just like the, pe- the people in Jerusalem, uh, Nehemiah could not build that wall on his own, right? So all he could do was encourage the people to trust in God. And when everyone did their part, it really didn't take long at all. 52 days. Just like our founding fathers did when they focused on community first, we should do the same thing today. Most of us, however, including myself, get our news from national news sources. Mm -hmm. So no matter what party you're affiliated with, you're most likely getting your news from CNN, MSNBC, uh, Newsmax, the Victory Channel, Fox News. It doesn't matter because all these are national news sources, right? And it can make you become very frustrated, frustrated with the president, frustrated with Congress, frustrated with the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter. Take your pick. You're probably frustrated with something, no matter, no matter where you stand. And the thing is, there is nothing you can do about that. Not today. The, the, the only thing you can do is vote in the next election, and that's still not fixing the root of the problem. Because the root of the problem starts locally, focusing on our communities, Okay. Running for your local scoreboard, local office, it doesn't matter. You know what? If you can't run, then great. Support. Support someone that you know is going to make godly decisions for your community. Support them. Get, get their name out there. Get them put into office. Local elections are actually won by super low numbers. Like, people do not turn out for local elections, myself included. I'm preaching to myself. I have not voted in local elections like I should. But that's where we can have great change is by voting in our small local elections. Because that's where real lasting change happens. We can make an impact around those around us. 
by showing them just the love of God and showing them that all God wants is just a loving relationship with them to guide them into all truth. That's what God wants. Amen. So hopefully you have learned something today about our nation's history, uh, how the Great Awakenings have actually shaped America, and how God is doing something amazing right now, and that you have a mission. Again, just like my shirt says, I was made for this. You know what? You, you are all made for this. You all have a part to play. Remember, your role, uh, your part to play will look different than your neighbor's. Not everyone is a pastor. Not everyone is a teacher. But everyone is called to ministry. Like it says in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You are all saints in here today, and you are to be equipped for the work of ministry, your ministry. Amen. It doesn't... (laughs) When that takes place at your work, it takes place at the grocery store, it doesn't matter where you're at. You have a job. You have a role to do for the kingdom of God. So now let's all just go build the kingdom of God together. Amen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I want to pray over you guys before, before Kate comes back up here. But Heavenly Father, I thank you for this amazing day. I thank you for the great things that you have done in this nation. I thank you for the pastors and this, the godly men and women of this nation that went before us, that spoke into the people, that showed them how to have a biblical worldview, that said, we are going to stand for God. I thank you for those people, Father God, and I thank you for where we are at today. I thank you that you still have your hand upon this nation. I thank you that you have a great plan for this nation and for the awakening that is happening right now. I pray a boldness over each and every person in here, Father, that you would embolden them and that you would reveal to them their exact key role to play in this period of time, Father God, for they are set here today at this time for a reason. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your purpose to them so clearly that they cannot deny it. And then I pray that boldness to walk it out, to step it out. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. 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 Oh, and uh, real quick, if you like any of that stuff, a good place to see historical facts to read about our history is wallbuilders.com. That's David and Tim Barton. They have so much good stuff. And they don't teach you what to think. They teach you how to think by showing you the original documents. You're reading original historical documents So they're not teaching you what they say. They're just showing you what they say, and then you can make a decision what our founders truly meant. Amen. That's wallbuilders.com. Yep. In fact, they actually got that name from Nehemiah. (laughs) Nice. Thanks, man. Let's give them a hand. How many of you are thankful that he did all the research so you don't have to, right? Or do we have some history buffs out there? No, no, what? More so now. Now we're a little more interested than we used to be. Huh? You know, as uh, thinking about an issue and a question, a hard question that people often ask me, and it's like, Cade, why does the uh, church have to stand up against homosexuality or against abortion? And I don't know if you've ever had that question come up in your mind, like, can't we just be quiet about it and not cause a fuss? And the thing is, we can't. the reason we can't be quiet about it is because there's advocates for those things out there trying to convince people that it's okay to live that kind of lifestyle or that it's okay to kill your babies or that's okay. So that's when the church has to stand up and say, let me tell you what the word of God says. 
Here's what the word of God says. And we all have to commit to that. And it's important that we do, or a whole generation could be lost into the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, wouldn't it be terrible for somebody to be like, you know, the world told me that a homosexual lifestyle is okay. And that lifestyle kept them away from God their entire life. And they go to hell because nobody told them to get close to God. You have to leave that stuff behind. You know, Jesus saves you from those things. He delivers you from those things. We just got to do it in love, right? (laughs) Amen. Well, as I was in one of my quiet times today, thanks, Tim, for that message last week, because that was incredible. So powerful to have your personal quiet time. The Lord gave me a short little message for you. And it's, uh, so I want to ask you a question. How many of you desire to live in the fullness of the promises of God? Anybody desire that? Well, when it comes to living in the promises of God, it's always a partnership. Somebody say partnership. We do something... And God does something in return. We do something, and God does something in return. And although it's definitely not a fair partnership, though, because God asks us to do something very small, and he does something very big in return. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, God says that he'll bless us in the city. He'll bless us in the field. When we come in, when we go out, he'll cause our enemies to be defeated before our face. He'll give us a surplus of prosperity. He'll give us land and he'll bless the land and he'll give rain to our land in its season. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. These are big promises and they're awesome promises, but it's a partnership. It also tells us what our part is to play in that same scripture. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 28 too. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord, your God. So here's what God's saying. You obey the things that I've asked you to do, which are good for you anyway. And I'm going to overtake you with blessings. And that's the partnership. Isn't that awesome? So our part's to be obedient. His part is to give us heaven here on earth. And in Malachi 3, God promises to open up the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that we can't contain it. But it's a partnership. And what do we have to do to live in this blessing? He tells us in the same scripture. He says, give the first 10% of your income to God through the church called the tithe. And we all love a good message on tithing, right? No? But that's it. You give 10% and he opens up the windows of heaven? I mean, that's a bad deal for God, but it is a good deal for us. That is so awesome. It's a valid partnership, though, and God wants to partner with you so bad, he makes it so easy for you to jump in and get involved in this partnership. So my question to you today is, have you taken advantage of this partnership? Have you done your part? Because if you haven't, I want to encourage you to activate this partnership by giving the first 10% of your income every single time Every single paycheck, the first 10% goes back to God through your church and the windows of heaven will open. And I can testify to it because I've lived it. And there's many people in this room that could tell you the same thing. Amen. Lord, (laughs) we commit to you. And Lord, we love you. And we choose today to obey you because we know that your way is the best way. Man, we thank you for this awesome partnership. I don't know why you do it, because it's not fair, but man, I want to be a part of it. So I'm going to do that 10% thing. I'm going to obey your commandments, because I want to live in your blessing. And everybody who's with me says amen. Amen. Well, if you're ready to give today and you want to give by cash or check, just raise your hands and one of our ushers will bring an offering envelope. And of course, you can give online anytime on our website, nolimits.fyi. There's a giving button there. It'll get you where you need to go. 
Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to those that give in to our ministry. It's because of your generous giving that we're able to lead people to Jesus and make a difference all around the world. If you're ready to give, head to your browser and type nolimits.fyi into the address bar. And if you were encouraged by this podcast, then hit that share button and pass it on so that others can be encouraged as well. Or you can even take a screenshot and share it on your social stories. Thanks again for listening. Now let's go make a difference.